Keith, I have some good news for you in this podcast. What could possibly be better news than Randolph Macon winning at Hampton Sydney on Saturday? I'm going to need you to wax poetic in this podcast. Sweet. I'm ready to wax. That's good. I'm just ready to turn up my mic. I don't know why the mic was so low in the selection show. It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Welcome to the Around the Nation podcast, uh, week 11 of the 2016 Division Three football season, the podcast for November 14th, 2016. And I tell you, this is a great day for Division Three football, in my opinion. Uh, it sounds like getting an extra flight in the football bracket might be something that's more than a one-time thing. Uh, we have a selection committee that's open-minded enough to select a third-place team in a conference, and at least for a season... I don't have to listen to people gripe and complain about Mount Union always getting home games in the playoffs. This is a great bracket, uh, Keith, and I can only hope that the playoffs themselves live up to the opportunity that uh, they've been given this year. Pat, by any measure, this is the best job a selection committee has done in the 17 years we've been doing this, and since the playoffs expanded from 16 teams to 28 and then 32. They addressed all the usual gripes, spending money on travel, putting an 8-1 and team from a powerful conference in the field when we all know it belongs instead of a 9-1 and team that didn't play a very tough schedule. And they even avoided giving Harden-Simmons 9-1 and with just a five-point loss to number one in the nation, Mary Harden-Baylor, a first-round trip to see the crew. The Cowboys got the home playoff game they deserved, although against as tough a foe as one could imagine. Get this, too. The committee got the top 21 teams in our poll in the field, something Woo-hoo! that's never been done as long as I've been keeping track of the bubble. Yeah. They uh, And they entered Saturday night's discussion with 11 one-loss teams and two eight-and-two teams with legitimate cases on the, all those teams. That's 13 bubble teams. And they emerged with the right six. Whoever has a gripe, it's modest at best. The Pool C teams were ranked number four, number seven, number nine, number 11, 12, and 13 in our top 25. So if Frostburg State or Muhlenberg or St. Lawrence wants into the field of 32, fine. But who do you displace? And I know I say this every year because I'm so prone to buying in on the really good non-purple powers, but it's wide open this year. The brackets aren't perfectly balanced. Mount Union still has the easiest path to Salem. But can you legitimately say there's a favorite right now? We're set up for five weeks of big intrigue. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mount Union might have the easiest path, but they still have to make the journey. And, and, you know, we've certainly seen an OAC runner-up run roughshod through East Region teams to get to the quarterfinals and beyond before. Uh, Meanwhile, I don't always feel that the playoffs are wide open, but I definitely feel that way this year. I think there is indeed a clear favorite. Uh, They've been number one on my ballot for several weeks, but there really are perhaps five or six teams with legit chances to win it all. This is going to be a fun tournament. Um, Coming up later in this podcast, we're going to hear from Jack McKiernan. He's the athletic director at Kane University, the national chair of the Division III Football Selection Committee. He spoke with Frank Rossi and James Baker on In the Huddle on Sunday afternoon, and we'll present some excerpts from that in our interview segment. But, Keith, I'm just having a hard time pondering which of the many great things about this bracket was the best thing. Like, when I put it out to the readers on the poll on the front page, uh, they voted for Mount Union going on the road, which I guess I should have expected considering the number of uh, Mount Union haters. I, I think that's an accurate term in this case that uh, we see every November. Um, number two answer in the poll was three WIAC teams getting in, and I think that might be true, that we finally have a second data point to go with Empire 8 from 2007. Uh, being a third-place team shouldn't be an automatic disqualifier. Well, and, and that 2007 case, too, was a case where the a team that won the automatic bid, which was Hartwick, probably wouldn't have got in 
with its at-large case. It was, it, but the tiebreaker broke funny, and they put the other two teams in the field. In this case, all three teams were were solid, deserving, and given how tight the the results were between Platteville, Oshkosh, and Wisconsin Whitewater, where any of them could have beaten one another, uh, all three teams deserve their spot. But I think the best thing, or the, the one I feel best for, is uh, is for the fans of Harden Simmons, who I'm sure were resigned to their yearly screw job of being sent to Mary Harden Baylor for a first round rematch. <laughs> and while they might yeah. well get sent to Belton in round two, uh, fans and students in Abilene at least get to enjoy being the epicenter of the Division Three playoffs or the epicenter west of Geneva, New York for one week. Another best thing I thought, and, and this really deserves to be highlighted here on the podcast, was, uh, was the level of discourse around this year's selection and the understanding of the process. From a committee chair who, who clearly gets it to fans who do, even on Twitter, uh, the release to the release of the, the, the final regional rankings, I feel like Division Three has come a long way in its playoff selection process. I must have seen only the fans on Twitter who don't get it. But one thing I didn't see this year is we did not have uh, a base full of uh, players from specific teams uh, griping about uh, not getting into the playoffs, which uh, we've certainly had happen in the past. Um, we certainly had our fair share, though, of people commenting on uh, stories all night Saturday, well into Sunday, probably uh, into Monday, and, and maybe uh, most of next week as well. But regardless, uh, that stuff doesn't dampen my enthusiasm for this week, this weekend, or this bracket. Um, one thing I will say here, especially for those who are not regular listeners to this podcast, typically we focus quite a bit on the games that were just played and less so on what's coming up. But, you know, this is the postseason, a whole new, brand new season. 31 games to decide the national championship. Unfortunately, that's going to mean we don't talk a lot uh, about a lot of the things that happened in Week 11 if they didn't impact the playoff picture. Uh, I would recommend going to the latest Around the Nation column on d3football.com and reading Adam Turr's snap judgments for some analysis on the other goings-on from Saturday. And I'd like to point out right now that this week's of the Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by the city of Salem, home of Stag Bowl 44, that's a slow golf clap for having a sponsored podcast this week. That's right. Uh, Stag Bowl 44 kicks off at 7 p.m. on Friday, December 16th. Tickets are on sale now. For more information about the Salem, Virginia area and any championship hosted by the city of Salem, visit SalemChampionships.com. Uh, for me, Keith, one of my favorite parts of the Stag Bowl experience has become the Gilardi Trophy ceremony on Wednesday night. I think that's a must-see for any serious Division Three fan. Uh, what do you think fans should see and do when they're in Salem? Uh, the Stag Bowl? Yeah, you that should would be, see that. That's good. I like that. That would that would be ideal. But I think um, it's actually just kind of a a, a real nice um, you know mid sized city, Salem and and Roanoke uh, put together. So if you're if you're going to make the trip, you know you'll be able to fly in. The airport's right there, but it's also got a nice downtown area. And um, the I think the best thing really about Salem, this is why it, it, we keep going back and it it keeps going back to Salem, is the folks who put it on. And, and the uh, the folks in the city who come out and, and host the teams and support it and make um, Division Three feel as big time as possible. And let's talk game balls. Uh, I'm giving mine to Matt Hunt of DePauw. Matt had a fantastic career for the Tigers, and there's no better way for a DePauw quarterback to cap off a season then by leading the two-minute drill, no, not now, Kenny Main, and throwing the game-winning touchdown pass with 38 seconds left to take back the Monon Bell. 
Throwing the winning touchdown to your brother is icing on an amazing cake. And Andy Hunt caught the 13-yard touchdown pass for the 37-34 to win. Matt, for his part, threw for 241 yards, ran for 159 for the Tigers on Saturday, and he finishes his career with 8,659 career passing yards. He's DePaul's top player in career total offense with 10,635 career yards, and, and now he has the bell. My game ball goes to John Carroll. And in a way, it goes to years of Mountain Union teams because without the 222-2 and two regular season record since 1994, the streak of OAC title since that year, Saturday's Blue Streaks win is just another 31-28 result. But let's give credit to John Carroll's defense, which sacked Dom Davis seven times, and its offense, which produced a game-winning drive and an Anthony Meglin to William Wood 24-yard touchdown pass with 39 seconds left. Tom Arth's team legitimately shook up Division Three and busted the tournament wide open as we head into it. And for that, John Carroll gets my game ball. And I should also point out while we're discussing John Carroll that the Blue Streaks went out and scheduled Wisconsin Oshkosh for the opener, and it didn't cost them a playoff spot. Yeah, that's true. Hey, uh, perhaps playing Oshkosh early on meant that John Carroll was a little better prepared for facing a team of Mountain Union's caliber. How about that for a thought? That is the point. Uh, oh, I'm sorry for uh, overemphasizing the point and uh, and making it making it awkward. That's what we do. So uh, traditionally, at this point, we uh, roll out a new set of rundown categories for Selection Sunday, uh, ones that uh, Keith used in around the nation previously. It's it's kind of amusing to look at them today because a lot of them are based around things that we would normally complain about. But uh, we're gonna go ahead and throw them out there anyway, just for consistency's sake, or maybe to remind us of uh, where we've been and, and uh, how far we've come. Starting with what the committee nailed. This is what they got right in the bracket. Can I cop out and just say everything? Uh, probably not. So I'm just going to take another opportunity to compliment everyone responsible for getting another flight into this bracket and bringing two teams into Texas in the first round. But rather than say anything else about it myself, I'm going to let Pete Fredenberg do the talking about his reaction to the bracket. Here's the Mary Harden Baylor head coach. Well, it, it excited me just because, it, you know, it's always fun to have somebody new to play and you know we were expecting Harden Simmons and it's and I'm just glad that Redlands and we'll meet meet up with Harden Simmons or Linfield two teams that we've already played this year and uh, had a great opportunity to beat them both so you know that's that's going to be a neat experience but the great thing is to see that you're going to have a home field advantage throughout the, the tournament so we just now have to rise up to the occasion and play great and do the things necessary to achieve uh, the success we want to achieve. Keith, what did the committee nail from your perspective? They nailed the at-large teams. Let me reiterate, all six at-large teams were ranked 13th or higher in our poll. The highest-ranked team left out was number 22, St. John Fisher, followed by 23, St. Lawrence, and number 24, Frostburg State. Now, you have to feel for each of those teams and all the others whose bubble burst, Muhlenberg, Barry, Case Western Reserve, maybe even Salve Regina. But it's not often that the committee, the criteria, and common sense align so well. Usually nine wins for an NJAC team would get them into the tournament. The Mules, they beat everyone they played, and they had only a six-point loss to Johns Hopkins. Those are pretty good playoff resumes. But if you remember that ultimately this is a national championship tournament, tell me which team with legitimate Stag Bowl aspirations got left out. I'll, I'll wait. Which team that could beat Mountain Union or probably beat Mountain Union, even in a 9-1 down year, got left out? Which team more likely to advance than whoever wins the Platteville-St. John's game on Saturday? Which, which team like that got left on the sidelines? There's nothing I could say to make it feel better for the teams that got oh so close to getting in. But objectively speaking, the committee put the 32 best teams it could 
into the field, given the format. And for that, they deserve credit because if they hadn't, they darn sure would be getting our scorn. I feel like I need to do the slow clap now, huh? I still, I still feel really good about this bracket. So when we go to uh, our, our next category, what the committee blew, there's not a whole lot to choose from. Um, I'd at least look at the fact that Wheaton and North Central could face each other in the second round and Platteville and Oshkosh could face each other in the second round. I wonder whether that could have been avoided. Couldn't we have kind of lifted out the Platteville-St. John's matchup and swapped it over to the other side of the bracket, trading it for the Wheaton-Huntington game? Maybe this is minor, but it wouldn't have cost any extra money, and we could have split the CCIW and the WIA completely on opposite sides of the bracket. Yeah, those are good points. There could be a lot of conference rematches, including another Texas tussle in round two and another Tommy Johnny game, perhaps, in round three. Uh, if we have to quibble with things, my gripe is that the quadrants aren't really balanced, although the sides of the brackets are. If, if you look at the bracket the way it's posted on d3football.com, there's about half the good, the the top ten, top fifteen teams on one side, about half on the other. Um, you know, and maybe teams like John Carroll, Johns Hopkins, Alfred, they live up to their promise, and the and the quadrants turn out to be more balanced than they look right now. Once we get a few weeks into the tournament, and we get a few weeks of information, it may uh, it may look a lot different. And I will say the the committee appears to have gotten the number one and number two seeds right. Although I'd be curious if there was much discussion given to making Oshkosh or North Central a one seed, maybe in place of St. Thomas. I don't know if that's an answer we're going to get, uh, but having already talked quite a bit about the committee's role in this so far, let's not go any further for, uh, through this before we actually hear from the chair himself. So Jack McKiernan chatted with Frank Rossi and James Baker from In the Huddle on Sunday evening, and we are excerpting about half of it here coming up. To hear the full interview, seek out In the Huddle at uh, blogtalkradio.com slash ITH. Uh, we pick up where McKiernan is talking about the bracketing of the Texas teams. It's multifaceted. You know, the NSA, uh, as much as people like throwing uh, knives their way, they really try to do best by the student athletes. And, uh, you know, the championships committee, uh, you know, working all the way through its structure, really tries to do what's best. And, you know, they, they see logic sometimes. And, you know, I, this year, the way everything fell, you know, it, it seemed like the right thing to do to not have those two teams playing in the first round. You know, they're both. Um, I think first and third in the South rankings, um, you know, so it, it, it seemed to work, uh, that way. And, you know, we had a couple of other, um, you know, favorable matchups where we, you know, um, didn't have to fly as much or, or really struggle with, with getting pairings, uh, together, you know, the, the, the map sort of fell together a little bit easier, uh, in some other places that allowed us the flexibility to, to pick up that third flight to, you know, try to balance out the bracket because uh, I mean, ultimately, you know, we're trying to do what's best for all of college football and, you know, give everybody a fair opportunity that uh, this, this Saturday all 32 teams can uh, feel that they were, they were handed a fair shake. Now, you know, we are a Liberty League and East Region-centric show, and we'll start to kind of uh, focus in on that. Again, folks, uh, you are in the huddle with Kane University Athletic Director Jack McKiernan, chair of the NCAA Division Three Football Championship Committee. Uh, my uh, co-host, James Baker, uh, who I know is uh, out there waiting to ask a couple questions, uh, was interested to see the Hobart-Mount Union matchup. James, why don't you go ahead and start a couple questions on that line? I mean, Hobart was probably the second-ranked team in the East region. How did they end up with the Union? Well, I mean, that, that listen, I said this in, in 
in this room where we're at, we made the selections that um, everybody out there when they see this bracket is going to worry about their team, and then we'll be curious where Mountain Union was going to wind up. So, uh, you know, you know the, as the committee, uh, we have the utmost you know, respect for, for Mountain Union for what they've ever, everything they have done. Uh, but again, you do have to treat them like every other team that's in that plays um, in Division Three, and we have to look at numbers and look at results and look at conference results uh, across conferences when you do have some comparisons. And um, our final regional rankings will come out. Um, Mountain Union was the fourth. I'm pretty sure was the, was fourth in the north. Um, so when you have a four seed from one region playing the two seed in, in another region, you could see why they'd be on the road, and you could see why you know Hobart. Uh, you know, you, 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 sometimes you you do try to take the names off the off the line when you're looking at this and pairing things up, and um, it, it it just the way it worked out, and um, Hobart either has you know a bad draw or or whatever, uh, however you, you look at it. Um, but, you know, that's the way we felt. You know, we, we, did, we can't cater to any pr one program. We're trying to be fair to everybody. Um, and, you know, that you know, where the numbers pushed us, that's the way the bracket fell. And like I said, as much as, we, as you guys talked about the flights, you know, geography does make, make sense um, sometimes. You know, that, that, is, that is a driving force when we put a bracket together so um it's not a true 32 team uh top to bottom weighted bracket so um you do have some inconsistencies you know um out there was there kind of that discussion about my unit to say we know who they are still and we're gonna take a you know a more of a subjective view of that team than we might let's say if it was team xyz with no name on the board yeah, I mean, absolutely. This this isn't done in a vacuum. Um, if if Division Three wanted its championships decided by straight numbers, they would just develop a BCS system for all sports, and there wouldn't need to be racks, and there wouldn't need to be uh, committees. So it's our job as a national committee to look beyond the numbers, because uh, in reality, if anybody's out there that is uh, mathematicians, you know, statistics, uh, you know, football's numbers are the weakest. You know, we have the least amount of games played. Uh, you're dealing with uh, a lot of conferences that play one non-conference game, like Mountain Union's conference. Um, so it doesn't give you the opportunity to have, have crossover games. And these games are uh, potentially this one non-conference game is scheduled years in advance and with, with no understanding of what that team is going to be in four years when you, when you make that schedule. So th there is some reality of, of this that, that yes, we, we do look at the names uh, as we should, I think. I think everything needs to be taken into consideration. The eye test um, is a factor. You know, do we think they were one of? Uh, in in that case, you know, the, our six pool seed teams, we felt uh, by the, our criteria and everything taken into consideration, were the, were the the best six at large teams to be selected into this field. No East Region teams were picked in Pool C, and we knew the West would have a lot of strength in Pool C overall, but. You know, there were some good candidates, obviously, but Frostburg 
ended up ahead of St. John Fisher. We know St. John Fisher lost yesterday to Alfred. We know that Frostburg State beat Salisbury. Salisbury remains in the rankings. Kind of take us through, and I I know you're on the East uh, Regional Advisory Committee. Uh, Take us through this a little bit as to how Frostburg may have crossed over on top of St. John Fisher and you know what happened when the East team, Frostburg State, the number one Pool C candidate on the board, was looked at for six rounds but never selected ultimately to the degree you can. Some of the discussion is done in confidentiality, so I won't you know give everything out there. But I mean, if you, if you look at it, um, uh, Frostburg State uh, had one loss within conference play in the New Jersey Athletic Conference with you know six teams that have been in the NCAA tournament in the last ten years. Um, St. John Fisher, Empire, tremendous conference, uh, has the ability to play two non-league games. St. John Fisher went out and beat an AQ team out uh, in Olivet uh, quite handily by 42 points. That was impressive. Um, But they did pick up two losses within conference. Um, And I'll I'll speak. I, I, as a chair, we don't have a vote in, in the rack. But, you know, the RAC committee, um, uh, the coaches themselves uh, vote. Uh, but it, it, if we're speaking eccentric, I think it's fair to compare the Empire Aid and New Jersey Athletic Conference. One team picked up two losses in conference play. One picked up one loss. Um, so you, you can, you know, Utica is a heck of a team and, and anything can happen on any given day. But St. John Fisher dropped that game in the middle of the season. Um, so that, that – their numbers do look good, and they did, have done a lot of great things. But uh, when you're splitting hairs a little bit, um, that's sort of how it it, it fell on um, on the committee moving that up. That you know the last week that it felt uh, Frostburg beat you know a very quality Salisbury team, and it, it just like I said we're we're splitting hairs. It was not a consensus by any means that um, that was a flip flop, but that's just the way the committee went. We sensed that Platteville probably was very late in the Pool C uh, developments. Obviously, they had to be somewhat later because they were three deep in the Pool C list in the West region, and obviously those first two have to be taken before they will be considered, uh, Platteville, that is. Uh, What did you see as a committee in Platteville that maybe pushed, obviously, their selection uh, over teams uh, that may have been slightly higher in their respective regions rankings. Yeah, I mean, I, absolutely. I mean, whenever you choose a team that had two losses over teams that had one loss, um, that, that opens you up for a lot of questioning. Um, you know, but you look at the, the, their quality of their schedule that they played, um, two single-digit losses to uh, Whitewater, who many people feel might be the best team <laughs> in the tournament. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, again, single digit loss to Oshkosh, whose only losses, um, you know, to Whitewater. So, um, there was that, I mean, they, they had a, uh, a good win out of conference over an AQ team. Um, you know, but like I said, you're, I can sit here and no vote ever goes, uh, 100% the same way. You know, you recycle these teams next year with the same numbers and you can have a different result uh, when it comes about because it's just really tough when you're trying to pick those teams. You know, there's very little cross crossover uh, with this and, and you're trying to do what 
do what's best for the, the region, uh, or in this case, uh, the nation. But it, it's really hard to compare, you know, teams because, you know, you were talking about St. John Fisher. Two-loss team, in, you know, really strong in the East. Uh, their numbers stacked up very uh, similarly to Platteville. I'd like to see those two teams play, but we didn't have more spaces in the, in the field to, to put them in. So, um, you know, when you only have six spots, it's tough. And, you know, as, as much as I, this hurts to say, a lot of times, like, every team, every team that didn't make the tournament lost so that they had the opportunity. If they made a play or not, uh, they could have gotten in the tournament. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a really tough go of it. Uh, but, you know, as a national committee, we felt, we felt confident that that was uh, a deserving team to get it an at-large uh, slot into our tournament. I tell you, Keith, we've done these interviews. We've listened to a lot of these interviews. I've, I've done and listened to these interviews across a range of Division Three sports, and it's just not very often that you get uh, you know, actual information out of, a, out of a committee chair interview. I think releasing the final regional rankings certainly helps because you know, then all of that information is, is out there in the public already. They don't have to dance around it. But I was just impressed by actually getting something out of this conversation. Uh, Pat, I agree, and it's a huge difference to have those regional rankings because it helps everybody understand where they fall or, or where they fell or why they didn't get in. And, and that's one of the things that um, that Jack McKernan said is that every team, you know, even though it's kind of difficult to say, every team had its chance to get in. There was no case of Case Western Reserve uh, going 10-0 and 0 and being left out on some criteria, right? Everyone lost a game and had some opportunity, and a lot of them were were opportunities that came down to games in Week 10 or Week 11, uh, and those teams didn't didn't get in. And so it's tough to leave nine and one and and eight and one, eight and two teams on the bubble. But there were so many of them this year. It's really a, it's really a hard job for the committee to do that. And I thought. Um, he he had both a good grasp of the process, which you'd expect committee members to have, but also being able to share with us kind of the 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 way they work through some of those things, and sometimes just saying, "Hey, look, you're just you're just chopping up numbers here. At some point, you have to make a decision, and it's going to be tough. Um, but here's why we did what we did." I, I thought one other thing uh, that kind of got touched on in the interview that we should point out. Um, is that they kind of took a, a they were more welcoming of common sense this year <laughs> and and that part of that is kind of you know being unshackled um, by the the NCA membership with the regional rankings but I thought also with the flights in the first round even though they're they're essentially saying hey we spent um, for three flights in the first round when we only had to spend for two based on who got in. If you look at what they did with the bracket, because all those teams are going to play each other, the flying teams, so to speak, uh, Redlands, Mary Harden, Baylor, Linfield, Harden, Simmons, and Huntington, um, those teams are going to eliminate each other pretty quickly. And so there's potential for fewer flights in the second round and third round, although you always get to a point in these tournaments where eventually teams have to fly. And it's not a completely unreasonable um, set of pairings to to set those teams up with either. Obviously, we'd prefer not to have uh, the one and the three in the South, Mary Harden, Baylor, Harden, Simmons, play each other in the second round. But, you know, uh, it's better, for goodness sake, it's better than having it happen in the first round because uh, that is pretty much how it's uh, almost always happened 
previously. Um, I thought this might be a good opportunity too to uh, address our projection from Saturday night, uh, where we picked St. John Fisher instead of Wisconsin Platteville. You know, basically, if we wanted to pick uh, the teams that we thought would be the best to get in, we just would have gone bang, 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 bang straight down the uh, the D3Football.com top twenty-five, and we would have ended up with the same six teams that they did. Um, it's uh, I am ecstatic that they chose the teams they chose that's fantastic um and i look forward to how this ends up in the bracket and you know you you you, we can never go right (laughs) in this situation uh if we had gone the other way then it would have been a year where they'd have chosen st john fisher uh we chose platteville last year for example and and they didn't get in either so it's just kind of the it's just kind of the way it goes when you're uh we had five pretty obvious pool c picks uh, and then the other one is a complete toss-up, uh, even less, uh, even more random than tossing a coin, to be honest. Well, the piece of information that we got from having the regional rankings and and talking to Jack McKiernan is that um, the East Regional Advisory Committee put Frostburg State ahead of St. John Fisher, which left Frostburg State on the board for all six rounds of selection. And then if you understand the process, if you listen to the the Bracketology show that you, Greg, and Frank did on Saturday night, um, and I think a lot more fans and coaches and players follow how the process works now than maybe, you know, 15 years ago when we first would would analyze the brackets. Um, You can follow why... St. John Fisher didn't get in because they were never on the board to be discussed. Yeah. And if, if Fisher had been on the board next to Platteville, then it's a much more difficult discussion. When you guys had that conversation last night when uh, or Saturday night when when you guys were um, doing the Bracketology show, you had St. John Fisher on the board at the same time because you assume that Salisbury falls out of the East top 10, the, the East regional rankings. Once that committee puts... Salisbury back in the top 10, then Frostburg has a win over a regionally ranked opponent, and all the dominoes fall in a different way. And, and, and suddenly St. John Fisher is not in the field. But it's not, I don't, and this is, again, I wasn't on that show, so I don't, I'm not obligated to defend what you guys picked. <laughs> um, but you guys, you guys followed the letter of the law. You discussed Platteville, and, and St. John Fisher had them on the criteria. But if St. John Fisher is not in the discussion, if you're discussing Frostburg State, I don't know if the other teams were Case, um, oh, you know, um, yeah, and uh, Franklin. I think at the end, Franklin in, in in Platteville, and you're not discussing St. John Fisher. Then there's no, you know, there's no comparison between um, St. John Fisher and Platteville to be made, and and you put Platteville in the field. Yeah, very interesting uh, how this whole process comes down, and uh, enlightening to have that information. So let's move on with the rundown. Uh, one of the things we look for is a team that played themselves into the playoffs during Week 11. Uh, I'm looking at a team that did it not only in Week 11, but also in Week 5, and, and that's Wash U or uh, Washington University or Washington University in St. Louis. However you want to call them, they played themselves in this past weekend by defeating the University of Chicago, finishing tied for first in the SAA. But that's why the Week 5 result is also important. That's when, uh, let's see, because Barry defeated center on Saturday to tie the Bears for first place. And since WashU beat Barry 34 to 10 back on October 1st, that's why WashU wins the tiebreaker in the Southern Athletic Association. And in their final year in the conference, they get the automatic bid to go to the playoffs. Well, a team that played itself in in Week 11 was clearly John Carroll. 
I wanted to say next question in a snarky way um, because John Carroll wasn't even going to be in the field. They lose to Mount Union. They're eight and two. They don't have a, a really good um, case for, for getting in. Um, we should also thank Randolph Macon, though, in, in this uh, week 11 teams that played themselves in because uh, not only did did uh, the Yellow Jackets beat Hampton Sydney to finish 9-1 and one and take the ODAC automatic qualifier, they helped us avoid having to figure out how to break that tie with uh, with with Emory and Henry and Washington Lee because the ODAC, because those teams beat up beat up on each other the same way the Empire 8 and the NJAC do, uh, that would have been a pain. And so thanks, uh, thanks to the Yellow Jackets for keeping us from having to do that. All right, Keith, I, I got to uh, take a tangent off of our uh, rundown here in Ashgate because you were there. How was it, especially as a Randolph-Macon grad? Was that a, how was that? Well, as much as I don't like being at Hampton, Sydney, if this makes any sense, it's a great place to watch a game. It, re- it really is. The setting is is beautiful. It's um, kind of like a, it's in a bowl. They built a real nice grandstand about 10 years ago. They fill up their side. There are people sitting on the grass parts. Not all that different from, from Clement Stadium if you've been to um, St. John's. I'm trying to think of their other places where their people could visualize maybe a little bit like McDaniel. Um, and then it's just it's got the atmosphere. It's kind of like homecoming plus rivalry at the same time. So you see you see people you haven't seen in years and the game's great. And so on on Saturday, it was real cool because uh, even though Hampton Sydney was three and six coming in, they, they you know gave it their best shot. It was 24, 23 at halftime, um, which was a little uncharacteristic because. Randolph Macon's only given up 115 points all year, um, and they scored 24 points in the second half to uh, to win going away, and it ended up being you know not that not like a great finish or a memorable finish for the years, but it was really memorable for uh, for Randolph Macon, um, and uh, I'll, I'll squeeze this in because I this is one of the great things about D3. You can just walk on the field at the end of the game and listen to the coach give his speech to the to the team. You know, you can't you can't walk on like at Wisconsin or Tennessee at the end of the game and just uh, stand there while the coach talks to the team. But one of the things Pedro Arruza, uh, a, a Wheaton graduate, by the way, who's been at Macon for about 10 years, one of the things he said to the team was that after they f- they f- had a couple down years in a row, they finished four and six last year. You start to hear the, the chirping from people. And, and, you know, I don't know if that's alumni or administration or whatever, that maybe we should start lowering our admission standards, uh, maybe not harp so much on character when you're trying to recruit guys and just try to get some better players in and uh and and he wouldn't do that and then he turned around and and found a a nine and one team or or you know built a nine and one team and that's what he was so proud of and i don't say that just to to boost the alma mater but i think that that's something that a lot of programs across the country can relate to in a lot of ways because we're always having this wrestling match with who are we as a program? Uh, what do we want to be? And how does football fit in at this institution? And so um, that's why I wanted to share that. Hashtag YD3 on that. Uh, Randolph Macon played themselves in. Wash U played themselves in. John Carroll, of course, played themselves in. There are only a few teams that played themselves out in Week 11. Uh, Case Western Reserve, definitely one of them. Spartans were 9-0 and going into the week, and, and while they couldn't win the PAC's automatic bid because of that much-discussed conference tiebreaker, they really could have assured themselves of an at-large bid by defeating Carnegie Mellon to go 10-0. and Instead, they lost, and they were buried so far down the bubble, their name probably wouldn't have come up even if we'd gone 10 deep in Pool C. Strength of schedule for them just wasn't very good, and in the final regional rankings, the ones they released on Sunday, Case was behind Barry and Muhlenberg in the South, and uh, those teams weren't selected either. 
Yeah, St. John Fisher played itself out in week 11. As much as the, the Cardinals had a case for an at-large spot with a monster 590 strength of schedule figure, and remember strength of schedule goes from about 400 to 600. It can, it can go higher, but you almost never see uh, a number as high as 590. Uh, St. John Fisher was a, the fourth best strength to, strength of schedule figure in the country. As much as they had a case with that for an at-large spot with that number, it's hard to feel too sorry for a team that could have clinched a spot with a better game uh, than Saturday's 38-17 loss at Alfred. Combined with their 23-6 loss to Utica on October 15th, the Cardinals had two not-that-close defeats. They did have the 52-10 season opening win at Alfred, um, excuse me, at Olivet, and uh, and a bunch of big wins in the Empire Eight. Not big by margin of victory, but but important wins against pretty good teams. Uh, but before St. John Fisher gets mad at the playoff selection committee, and to be fair, I didn't see any any Fisher folks complaining on uh, on Sunday night. Uh, before they get mad at the selection committee, they would get mad at themselves. Um, they're you know you had them projected in on Saturday night. But because those final regional rankings were, were visible to us this year, we got to see how Frostburg State ended up ranked ahead and how the Cardinals' resume never really got discussed. So many of the bubble teams really have themselves to blame, from Frostburg's early 43-7 loss to Wesley, uh, to St. Lawrence, Salve, Case Western, uh, and Fisher. They all had late losses that knocked them out. We talk about the most intriguing things in the bracket we think people might have missed. And when I think about this question, I recall something Ed Hoddle, the Stevenson head coach, told us on this podcast back in July. Uh, And that was when I shared with him the suggestion that Wesley was the team to beat and the measuring stick in his part of the country. He agreed, but he didn't think that there was that, that wide a gap. And since we have a, you know, an unlimited research staff, I went and pulled the clip. What's the what's the gap between like the top teams in the MAC and consistently competing on a national level like Wesley does? Um, I think it's very very small. I, I think that that you know where it's going is it getting smaller? Is it getting larger? You know, I I don't pay a whole lot of attention to that stuff outside of our program, um, but I I don't think it's as wide of a gap. As as it may appear, I mean, you know, you look at a Widener, you know, national quarterfinals. I think two years ago, um, you know, Albright Straw, you know, they, they I think they got uh, I don't remember who they got in the first round, but they had to go to you know had to go to Alliance in round two last year. Um, you know that that's tough. You know, were they a, a team that could have advanced had they been in a, in a different part of the bracket? Maybe. Um, you know, so I I think it's getting smaller and smaller. Um, because of the commitment that all of the institutions in the MAC are making to winning football games. Keith, I think we've got Stevenson taking another step forward, perhaps Wesley taking a half step back, but uh, we'll get to find out exactly where these teams measure up now on Saturday. Isn't that the great thing about the playoffs? It is. It's one of, it's one of many great things about the playoffs. Yeah, you get to see all these uh, all these questions that you had over the course of the past 11 weeks get answered in the, right there on the field. Um we do get caught up so much in, in some of the big games, uh, talking about some of the uh, intriguing things about the bracket that people might have missed. We get caught up in the in the you know where Mount Union and Whitewater and Mary Harden Baylor end up that we barely mentioned Coe and Monmouth, uh, the only battle of 10 and 0 teams in the field. That's uh, that's something intriguing that uh, that we may have missed. Huntington and Wheaton that could be a surprisingly compelling game if it becomes a shootout. The Hawks can certainly score. And, uh, and Rose Holman and Stevenson, they're in the playoffs, each of them for the first time in school history. Rose Holman's been playing for quite a bit longer than Stevenson, which was, uh, which was Villa Julie not all that long ago and didn't have football. 
Rose Holman for something like 112 years and Stevenson for six, if I uh, remember correctly. Uh, let's see. There's some great first round games that I think the best or at least the best one I can get to is uh, UW Platteville at St. John's. Uh, it should be a crazy matchup. Having seen both of these teams this year, I'm really looking forward to seeing if St. John's can contain a national-level offense. Uh, Johnny's have been putting up great numbers against the bottom teams in the MIAC, and admittedly also did so against Concordia Moorhead on Saturday. But now uh, I'm interested to seeing them defend everything that the Pioneers are going to throw at them, and uh, you know, if based off the last couple of weeks, everything the Pioneers are going to run at them as well. As much as we love this bracket, Pat, uh, almost all the first round games have clear favorites. Um, there's the one you mentioned, though, as far as looking for the best first round game. There's Wittenberg at Thomas Moore. And then there's the hands down highlight of, of round one, Linfield at Harden Simmons. I had both of those teams in the top 10 on my ballot. Our pollsters had them eight and 11. Now, in a perfect world, the top 16 teams would advance from the round of 32 to the round of 16. But as it stands, Somebody capable of advancing a round or more is going out in the first round, and, and that's going to be such a good game on Saturday. That makes it a tough path to Salem for somebody, for sure. Uh, and of the serious contenders for the national title, I might call Linfield's Road the toughest. Uh, I know I might be straining the notion of uh, serious contenders, considering Linfield's loss to Murray Harden-Baylor earlier this season, but for Linfield to advance to the quarterfinals, uh, they're going to have to win in Texas on back-to-back -back weekends. Uh, then they would have to beat presumably a CCIW team and then possibly Mount Union to get to Salem. Uh, tough path for sure, but it's one that they earned in that fourth quarter in Belton in September. Well, if you're looking for a reason to believe in Linfield, remember they have a, an elite quarterback in Sam Riddle, and uh, they'll, they'll give, that'll give them a chance there in, in Texas on Saturday and if they advance. My toughest path to Salem, I mean, first we have to note that Mount Union, even while leaving the poor residents of Alliance, Ohio, with nothing to do on a late November Saturday for the first time in 21 years, they still have the easiest quadrant of the, of the four. The other parts of the bracket are the parts that are stacked. Yeah, UMHB, Linfield, Harden, Simmons, North Central, and Wheaton, all teams ranked in our top 13, they're in the same quadrant. And then you have another quadrant with Number three, St. Thomas. Number four, Oshkosh. Number nine, St. John's. And number 12, Platteville. They're in that same group of eight as well. Ouch. Yeah, seriously. Um, we talk about uh, road teams most deserving of a home game. And I think there's people who would argue for Monmouth getting a home game in the bracket somewhere. Uh, Stevenson as well. Funny thing, though, but for all the unmitigated glee from fans at seeing Mountain Union getting sent on the road, they're actually the fourth seed in the bottom left bracket, and they're going to Hobart only because geography dictates that six-seed Western New England and seven-seed Husson play each other in the first round. How about that for a turn of fortune? Yeah, Husson way up in, in Maine. There aren't a whole lot of places they could go and not have to fly. Uh, Linfield is my road team, deserving, most deserving of a home game. Remember, they only have a loss because they played at Mary Harden Baylor in the opener. Uh, that's also why they don't have a home game after breezing through the NWC as usual. You know, they could have taken a, a, a much easier game or looked for an easier game. I don't know if they would have found one. Uh, that result, though, back in, in week one, gave them a common opponent with Harden Simmons, and the Cowboys' 20-15 to loss to UMHB looks a lot better than Linfield's 66-27. So on balance, geography and, and schedule strength are the main reasons why Western New England has a home game and Linfield doesn't. And we want to create incentive for teams like Linfield to take that early UMHB game. It's a minor gripe about this bracket because so many other things were done well. And because Linfield is still in the tournament and they still have a national championship shot. But I don't know if that incentive was created here. 
Yeah, that's a good point. If it if it disincentivizes uh, teams such as Linfield from doing this in the future, then it's definitely a disservice. Uh, Linfield has Mary Hart and Baylor coming to their place in the uh, uh, you know next September for the return game. So uh, Linfield still has an opportunity to uh, reap some benefits uh, from that series rather than just getting the uh, the the uh, the downside of it as they do here right now. Um. We normally at this point would talk about what we would have liked to see. And at this point, I really only have one request, uh, and that is the ability to stagger start times in these first round games. We're going to have seven games kick off at noon Eastern on Saturday, nine kick off at noon Central, 1 p.m. Eastern, and that's it, day over. This is perhaps the best day of Division Three football, uh, but nobody can watch more than a little bit of it the way it's set up. We've made so much progress in the past few seasons, so committee, and I think this is really just only in the hands of the committee. I don't think they have to go anywhere else to get this done. Let's make this the next priority. This is something we can do. Let's do this. Yeah, and, and you would probably wouldn't have to do – you could still give teams kind of some rigid options like 12, 3, or 6 or, or whatever the case may be. But I'll agree with you, Pat. Um, staggered starts would mean ded- dedicated fans could watch both the Wheaton and North Central games if you live in the Chicago area or St. Thomas and St. John's if you're in Minnesota. Hobart and Alfred are about two hours apart. Johns Hopkins and Wesley, you could get to both sites. Oshkosh and Whitewater. I mean, it could be done. You could watch two playoff games in a day, um, but maybe we're the only fools who care about double dipping. Well, even if we're not talking about being in both stadiums at the same time, you could you know, watch one in a stadium and watch another one at home. You could watch multiple ones in a row at home like you know you and i might do on an occasional saturday just uh, during the regular season um you know there are 32 teams are in the field there are 216 who aren't some of those teams might have fans who would watch a a setup that's kind of reminiscent of november madness it's a great point uh we did quick hits back on Friday. That seems like forever ago, and, and uh, literally it was about 10 front-page stories back, but uh, we're still going to run through our picks, um, at least the good ones. Uh, and We all picked uh, key impactful games for the game of the week, but it's the Franks. Uh, it's Frank Rossi and St. Cloud Times writer Frank Rakowski, who each picked John Carroll at Mount Union, and that's hard to dispute, uh, the, the most impactful game, uh, regular season game of this decade so far. Uh, Rossi also picked Case Western Reserve to get upset. Uh, Keith and Frank Rakowski also picked teams who would salvage poor seasons with wins. And, and Frank Rossi picked Wesley, really providing an eye-rolling definition of poor season. But, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, Keith, you and I each picked Mount Union as the regional number one team to have the closest game. How about that? Yeah, it was so close. It was three points in the negative direction. <laughs> yeah, neither of us uh, took Mountain Union as the team most likely to be upset. Uh, that would be uh, that would have been impressive. Uh, but for rivalry game winners, uh, Ryan Tips took Case. I took Monmouth. Adam Turr talk, took DePaul. And for the sake of time, I think we're going to call all the other picks bad and just move on. But uh, before we get into uh, the uh, the slope down to the end of this podcast, Keith, uh, you had a question from Twitter for us. I did, and it was uh, who hosts if Whitewater and St. Thomas both advance, and that's a great thing about the the regional rankings uh, being released. The, the The committee also shares um, the information that we need to determine who would host in in later rounds, and so it's pretty clear that that uh, if it were if it were to go chalk on that side of the bracket, that St. Thomas would have to go to Whitewater. Same deal on the other side, whether it was. Uh, Mountain Union or someone else uh, advancing, they would go to Mary Harden Baylor. 
Right, exactly. Uh, right. Mary Harden Baylor would host anybody out of that bottom bracket. And if it were somebody other than Mary Harden Baylor advancing out of the top side on the left, then it, it kind of goes to comparison of where the teams are seated. And you can kind of figure out now, we'll tell you where we believe the teams are seated. We'll have the best information we've had in a decade on that, which is nice. Um, but you can, uh, you can kind of figure those things out for yourself as well by looking at stuff. So. Uh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna have a lot of coverage coming the rest of the week, including playoff capsules, where we'll uh, list specifically what we think the seedings are. But uh, we have some stuff yet to get through. Your two-minute drill begins now. Yes, exactly. The two-minute drill, also known in this podcast as all the non-playoff things. And uh, in this case, for example, I gotta start the clock. How about that? Another tough season ends for Misericordia, where progress might be coming, but it's sure slow. Cougars salvaged a win to finish 1-9 for the fourth year in a row, meaning this football program is 4-46 and all-time. Well, the moaning bell goes back to DePaul, the Dutchman's shoes, to R- RPI. Uh, Randolph Macon beat Hampton Sydney in the game. I feel like I've mentioned that. Uh, Monmouth retains the bronze turkey. Cortland, uh, they did not let Mike Welch retire on a high note, uh, beating Ithaca for the seventh straight time and winning their seventh straight Cortica jug. Amherst beat Williams 28-3 for a win in the biggest little game in America, 130 meetings and counting, dating from 1884. I feel like that number's low, too. Is it really only 130? Um, We even found out this week that the Secretary's Cup game between Coast Guard and Merchant Marine is moving to Week 11. So rivalries in Division III, even though there weren't that many playoff spots on the line in rivalry games this season, uh, they are alive and well. Week 11 is a necessary place for that game now that both of them are going to be in the same conference again. And having that game on ESPN is going to be awesome for Division Three and for both academies. Let's go under the radar uh, even further. Susquehanna actually finished tied for third in the Centennial Conference, and that would have qualified them for a postseason bowl game. And if you remember the violation that the university discovered when it was found that a booster paid a tuition bill for one of the team stars, that meant they're ineligible even for a, uh, even for a bowl game. Well, Trinity Bantams beat uh, rival Wesleyan to end their season at 8-0, unbeaten in the NESCAC. And while they're not obsessed with playoffs, we are. Trinity probably would have a home playoff game next weekend if the NESCAC participated. But we would also be down to just five at-large bids in Pool C, and Wisconsin-Platteville would not have gotten in. So for your longtime abstinence, fans of the Pioneers, thank you. Uh, Trinity could have been hosting Husson. That thud you may have heard early Saturday evening was East Texas Baptist finishing its season with a bang. Sorry, not a bang, but a whimper, losing 47-18 to Sol Ross State. Going from playoff contender to, oh, we're out of time. All right. No way. Let's breeze through the... the, the... <laughs> Can we get, a sec- we get a second two minutes? We might need a second two minutes. Let's go. All right. That means the Tigers went from playoff contender to finishing in fourth place in the ASC in a matter of two weeks. And, you know, all of a sudden it doesn't matter what your strength of schedule is compared to Harden-Simmons when that happens. Hey, there were games off the beaten path and seasons that finished with a bang. So even though we're over our two minutes, here are a couple worth podcast mention. Yeah, Keith Nichols- even noticed in the rundown he was going over two minutes. You, you knew this was coming. That had two. That had like four and a half minutes written all over it. <laughs> it's a four and a half minute drill. That's a completely different set of play calls, though. Hey, a four minute drill is a real thing. Um, Nichols, they got a two point conversion in the second overtime to beat MIT 36-35 and finish as a six win team, which we might have forecasted on this very podcast a few episodes back. The Bison won five games in the previous six seasons, so I can't overstate how big a deal that is. Another team that uh, came up. 
Southwestern finished on a six-game win streak against all against SCAC teams, and unfortunately, no uh, no SCAC teams in the playoffs. But Southwestern uh, was a seven-win team in year four of the program after winning just three in the first three years. And also Bethany, they scored three fourth-quarter touchdowns to rally from a 31-13 deficit to beat St. Vincent by one point. Eight teams finished the season 0-10. Two of them finished 0-9, and two more finished 0-8. The NESCAC, not playing a full round-robin schedule, uh, means that Williams and Bowden both finished winless, and they didn't face each other. Uh, The 0-10 club this season, Howard Payne, Oberlin, Earlham, Wilmington, Grove City, Sewanee, Martin Luther, and Grinnell, Lewis and Clark, and Whittier each finished 0-9. Those are two schools, by the way, not three. Whittier and Lewis and Clark. Um... I, I, do you have anything else you want to drill? We've got 15 seconds. No, no, we're, we're in our second two-minute <laughs> drill, so I don't need to, to go to bonus time again. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, keep an eye on the site this week for more playoff coverage, including our annual predictions column being headed up by Adam Turr in Around the Nation. We'll have a final set of Around the Region columns. Yeah, I just had to let the timer finish. I was like, you really didn't turn that off? Uh, you know, I wanted to... I wanted to note where the four minutes was, just in case it came up. We left too much time. Someone could come back and score in that final uh, 15 seconds. It's true. All right. Uh, so we'll have our team capsules, like I mentioned. That's our team-by-team uh, playoff previews. We'll be hard at work on those over the next couple of days. Uh, meanwhile, you know, expect to see some coaching changes this week, and we'll keep the coaching carousel moving as quickly as we get stories. You know, The coaching changes don't come as quickly as they do in the NFL or in Division One, but yeah, they'll come. Uh, and before we sign off for the week in under an hour, by the way. Uh, One more note. Uh, This past week was COSIDA Membership Recognition Week, as in the Professional Organization of Sports Information Directors. Uh, Without SIDs, the news doesn't get out about your favorite football team, no matter how hard we might work to make it happen. So be sure to thank your SID. If you're looking for him or her, you'll probably find them working a 12-hour shift every Saturday, tirelessly updating a website, editing video, posting Instagram, hopefully with the D3FB hashtag, uh, nominating for players for uh, weekly and end-of-the-season awards. SIDs, they're the unsung heroes of the athletic department, and more should be done to sing them and sing their praises. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 162 for the week of November 14th, 2016, sponsored by the Cities of Salem, hosts of Stag Bowl 44. Get all your information about Stag Bowl 44 and all the championships hosted by the City of Salem at SalemChampionships.com. Thank you for listening and tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like this podcast, if you like the fact that we got it in under an hour, uh, I'm, I'm surprised, actually, uh, that we got that in under an hour. Please consider rating it in uh, iTunes or your podcast store. That will help other football fans find it. And thanks for following Division Three Football on D3Football.com. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Thanks to our guests, Kane Athletic Director Jack McKiernan and to Frank Rossi for their time and assistance on this edition of our show. And, of course, to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. Catch us every week from now through December 19th, then monthly in the offseason, and let's go enjoy some playoffs. We've still got five minutes. We could do five minutes of rollout here. No way. We're good, man. That was clean. Let's keep it. Now, if you we could, I mean, you want to start talking about some Saturday's games? What do you got? Uh, what do you got? Olivet at John Carroll. Okay, we didn't talk about Olivet very much, did we? Nope, nope. Lakeland at Whitewater. What do you got to score on that one? Uh, 
Well, I see Lakeland lost to Platteville 56 to nothing, and Whitewater beat uh, Platteville 30 to 24. So that would mean it's uh, going to be 62 to nothing. All right, I'll take uh, you take 62. I'll take everything under 62. <laughs> That's uh, why the transitive property of scores does not work in uh, in sports. Sure, Bridgewater State at Alfred. That's um that's a trip. It is, yep. Mountain Union yeah. and Hobart is is even more interesting than I would than we would let on. Um I'm interested to see how Shane Sweeney does. Uh it's the Hobart quarterback. He threw really well against uh a lot of teams this year. I'd be more interested in the other quarterback in Dom Davis now that Mountain Union's had him for uh I guess like maybe about six weeks he's been starting. Um so, so it's Mountain Union without a a super experienced guy, and and you know there was a time, of course, when Kevin Burke and Greg McKaylee were all inexperienced as well. Um, uh, Therese Scott last year um, was an experienced player, but it was his first season as the starting quarterback. So this will be interesting to see how how Mountain Union deals with um, just not being able to do whatever it wants. And I I think they'll they'll still, I mean. That, that round two game, if they get through Hobart at Johns Hopkins, could be a lot better game than the names on the jerseys might suggest. Uh, what are you doing with your Thanksgiving weekend? Mm, probably going to Johns Hopkins, I'm guessing. <laughs> probably sounds like a decent idea. Um, it would be interesting if we could get somebody to Texas. Um, the, the Thanksgiving weekend is like the worst time to fly, so... Yeah, I'd do it. I'd do it any other time. If I had my own plane, though, if we had the D3Football.com uh, Learjet or Cessna or something, I'd because you know uh, <laughs> Ab- Abilene and uh, and and Belton, uh, not exactly like right next to the big major commercial airport. No, that's true. But now I'm going to start looking up. Uh, I'm going to start looking up flights to Dallas. I'm going to do it. I haven't been to. Uh, I have. I have. I actually haven't been to Dallas. I flew into. Boston last time. And I flew into Dallas. When did I fly to Dallas? Oh, for the Cosida convention this summer. Yeah, I was going to say that Austin is much better to, to get the Belton, right? Yeah, it's just there's no flights out of Austin after like 5.45 in the afternoon. It's craziness. Oh, that is weird. So I might end up having to fly out of DFW. That I would appreciate there being a noon start because that way the game's over by 3.30. I could get on the road and get to DFW and get out. Okay, work product. Uh, nobody's interested in this. They've all tuned out. But thanks for listening to the Around the Nation podcast series. Where's that stop button?